Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, very first page in your Bible. We want everybody to be able to follow along because we're going to look at four verses together. So these brothers have some Bibles as they make their way back, get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you. Genesis 1. It's been said that success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. That is, when something goes right, you have many people who want to take credit. Success has many fathers. But when things go wrong, you hear, well, it wasn't my idea. I don't know why they did that. Failure is an orphan. There are times when we want to be known for a particular action, and there are times when we don't. When we do something wrong, whether sinful or just dumb, we all want to distance ourselves from that. But there are times where you may want to distance yourself from something good you've done, even something very good that you may have done. Most of you know that my dad was a pastor. Now, he was a bivocational pastor because the small storefront church that he led could not afford to pay him a full-time salary, and so he worked an outside job. But the church would supplement the little that they could pay him by sometimes leaving food on our porch anonymously. Now, I know it was the church folks who did it because I'd hear my parents saying so. It was clear to them that it had come from the congregation. Now, by the way, my folks were from the south, as was almost everyone in that church, and they called this collection of food for someone in the congregation a pounding. Now, that harkened back to the days when a food collection meant everyone would bring a pound of this or a pound of that. So the church would give the pastor a pounding. Now, if you ever hear one of our deacons talking about giving the pastor a pounding, please let me know because they don't bring food to my porch. Now, putting food on a porch without identifying yourself, it's an example of doing something good for which you want to be known only by God. On occasion in our church, I've had folks ask me how we can facilitate an anonymous gift for a brother or sister in the church. So there are times when we want to be anonymous, either because what we did was wrong or dumb, or because in humility, we don't want credit for the good deed. God's actions are never anonymous. God always wants to be known for what he does. He's never ashamed of any of his actions because he never does anything wrong. He never does anything dumb. And he has no humility Because it's not only hard for him to be humble, it's impossible. Now, when the God-man Jesus came to earth, he demonstrated the humility that should characterize us. But God has no cause for humility. And for him to practice humility by hiding himself, making himself anonymous, would be to deny his glory. And remember what his glory is. I've defined it for you a number of times. God's glory is the display of of his character, the display of who he is. And in the opening messages in our series, in this first book of the Bible, we've seen some of the scientific evidence that point to a creator. We've seen that the first and second laws of thermodynamics point to an outside energy, an outside force that must have created all that we see. 
We've seen the fact that the universe is expanding and the fact that time must have been created. All of this requires sudden appearance rather than gradual evolution. And just looking at the scientific evidence, not to mention the amazing complexity and design of the material world, just looking at that scientific evidence points to sudden appearance and the existence, at least at some point, of a creator. But those things cannot tell us who the creator is. In fact, they can't even tell us whether he's still around and active, nor how he went about his work. To know those things, to identify the creator and how he did his work, we must go beyond science to revelation. And remember, revelation is, yes, the name of the last book in your Bible, but it's a general term that means to make known. We need God to make his identity known. And that has to go beyond the science that points to him, to him telling us who he is and his purposes and his processes. But God desires to and always does reveal himself, make himself known. And this is why the opening verse of the word of God does not say in the beginning, the heavens and the earth were created, but rather in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we are the beneficiaries of God's revelation. God's making himself known and his ways known to us. We're going to see some things about God in verses two through five today in Genesis chapter one. And how the character of God that we see in those verses affects you and me. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you profoundly that you have made yourself known. You have made something of yourself known in the creation itself. That there is an all-powerful creator and an intelligent designer. But Lord, in your word... You have given us special revelation, special information about yourself, specifically pointing us to the true and living God and your identity and your purposes for us. Help us, Lord, to see those in your creative hand from your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each week we insert for you in your program an outline of the message. So I encourage you to take that out, take a look at it. And the very first point you'll see there is this. God makes... Something out of nothing. God makes something out of nothing. The very first line in the very first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now Genesis 1-1 deals with the absolute beginning of space and time and energy and matter. Prior to in the beginning, prior to Genesis 1-1, as we've seen in prior weeks, there was nothing. Nothing except God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This verse serves as a heading for all that then follows in chapter 1. In fact, the whole of the book of Genesis is structured with headings for then what follows. Most of the time saying, this is the account of. So this verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is a heading for all that follows in chapter 1 about God's creative activity. It describes how he went about doing that. In the six days of creation. But then if you'll just hold your finger in chapter one. I'm just going to have to have you flip just a few pages. Look at chapter two and verse four. 
Chapter 2 and verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then it focuses on the creation of the first man and the first woman. Man is created. And then if you look at chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse 1, this is the written account of Adam's family line. And then just a few more in chapter 6 and verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Chapter 10 and verse 1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. Just two more. Chapter 11 and verse 10. This is the account of Shem's family line. So one of those three sons of Noah now is focused in on his line. And then coming out of that line, chapter 11 and verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah, the father of Abram or Abraham. And so the book of Genesis is structured with these these headings. This is the account of and then what follows is are the details of that summary heading. And that's what you have if you go back to then chapter one of Genesis. Chapter one in verse one could be understood this way. This is the account of the creation of the universe. And then chapter two in verse four, this is the account of the succession of humanity from the creation of the world. And then this is the account of the succession from Adam in chapter 5 and from Noah in chapter 6 and his sons leading us all the way to Abraham. 2,000 years in 11 chapters. And those 11 chapters and those 2,000 years set the stage for all that follows in the Bible and for all of human history. And the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the heading. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 then says, Now the earth was formless and empty. The earth was formless and empty. Now some have translated this verse, and the earth became formless and empty. The idea would be then that God created in verse 1, but then what God created became formless and empty over time. There is then a gap, they say, between verses 1 and 2. Some of you may be familiar with then the gap theory. There is no gap between verses 1 and 2. In fact, the NIV, as I've read it, now the earth was formless and empty, is correct. Now, here's why. In the words of one Hebrew scholar, he says, in Genesis 1, every verse denoting a movement in sequence begins with this Hebrew term, avav, consecutive. The conjunction that our author uses is a disjunctive, conjunctive vav, which seems to clearly indicate that he did not wish to communicate that there was a movement in the sequence, a movement in the time. Rather, he's simply explaining what the earth was like at the time of its creation as reflected in Genesis 1.1. So the idea is this. God created the heavens and the earth, but at the moment he created the earth, The earth was formless and empty. Now, it was formless and empty, and now it's going to need to be shaped, and it's going to need to be be fashioned, and God is going to tell us how he did that. So we have a hint of this fact that God created the earth in this formless and empty way, and then fashioned it in the six days of, of creation. You have a hint of that from the psalmist. In Psalm 102, 
in the beginning, notice the same three words, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. God, in that moment of fiat creation, created the foundations, but now he is going to form and to fill those foundations. Deuteronomy says in chapter 5, These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and notice the deep darkness. Now, the reason I have that for you is because verse 2 says, Now the earth was without form and it was empty. And then it says there was darkness in verse 2. And some have understood this darkness to be a, a judgment upon the earth. Because of the supposed gap. As I've mentioned, there is no gap grammatically. But if there was a gap, the reason it became without form and empty is because God judged it. And the reason God judged it, say they, is because of the fall of of angels. But those angels were all created. They were all created in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 is simply now saying, this is how God went about his business. From that heading, here are, here are the details. And so darkness does not always mean judgment in the Bible. And in fact, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that God met with his people in the cloud, in the fire, in the darkness. And it goes on to say, you heard the voice out of the darkness and all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. Now, why does Moses who wrote these first five books of your Bible, including then, of course, this first book, Genesis. Why does Moses put this information in here, that God created everything and it was without form and it was was empty? Well, here's why. This was written at a time when Moses was leading God's people out of captivity in Egypt. I mean, when we read about these cosmic events going as far back as they do, we forget that this was penned by Moses. And penned by Moses at a particular time for the benefit of a particular people and, yes, for us thereafter. And in 1500 B.C., approximately, those people were being released from bondage in Egypt. And what did they need to know about their God? They needed to know that their God could make something out of nothing. (laughs) Because guess what? They weren't nothing. And they're coming out of Egypt and they need to know that all that they've gone through and all that they are going through is part of the plan of the creator God who makes something out of nothing. And verse 2 tells us that the spirit of the Lord, in the midst of this formlessness and this emptiness, the spirit of the Lord hovered over the earth. And that's reminding God's people that His spirit, God the spirit, is there to ensure that something will come of this formlessness and this emptiness. So God makes something out of nothing. Now, he does that in a couple of ways. One, I say in your outline, God creates out of nothing. God creates out of nothing. We have seen that the absolute beginning in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, was a creation in Latin ex nihilo, out of nothing, no pre-existing materials. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated create in verse 1, in the beginning God created, bara, is only used in your Old Testament with reference to God. There are other words for making, for forming, for creating, and those are the words that are always used for people. But never is this word used Of humanity. And this is the reason. Humanity can never create out of nothing. 
Humanity always needs something to start with. And God needs only himself. And we see that in verse 3. Because in verse 3, the Bible tells us, God said, let there be light. Let there be light. Now, if you know anything about your six-day creation chronology, you know that it's not until day number four that the sun is created. And yet, here on the very first day of creation, God says, let there be light. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, he hasn't created the sun. He's going to create the sun in just a few days. But God says, but God says, let there be light. This source of light was something other than the sun, which is not created until three days later. Now, how does God do that? Well, because God can create out of nothing. Now, hear this. Because God has energy and God has light within himself. And 1 John chapter 1 says this, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And in fact, the Bible teaches that there is coming a day in the future when the new Jerusalem is created and God's people dwell there and God says, and they will be my people and I will be their God. And here's what the Bible says in the second to the last chapter of the very last book of the Bible. The city does not need the sun. Or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. And then the next chapter. The last chapter of the Bible says. They will not need the light of a lamp. Or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. God creates out of nothing. Now I want you to notice. I have purposely put that in the present tense. God creates. Present tense. Out of nothing. You say, really? I mean, if I just walk down the street, does stuff just like appear? That God just decides to say, hey, watch this, isn't this cool? Does he do that? No. Here's how God creates out of nothing today and still creates out of nothing today. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says this. God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light. To shine in our hearts. When I say God. Present tense. Creates out of nothing. God creates spiritual life. In people. In whom there was only spiritual deadness. The God who called the light out of darkness. Caused his light to shine in our hearts. So if you ever ask. Are ever asked do miracles still happen. Thanks be to God, that miracle still happens. The miracle of regeneration. The miracle of being born again. The miracle of Almighty God who has light and life in Himself, breathing life into the spiritually dead. God makes something out of nothing. He creates out of nothing. And then I say in your outline, He fashions out of nothing. He creates out of nothing and He fashions out of nothing. Now, technically at this point, in verse 2, after he has created the heavens and the earth, there is something. But this something, according to verse 2, is formless and empty. And so it needs to be fashioned. Now, when it says formless and empty, it means it was unformed and it was unfilled. Empty means not filled, nothing there. And over these next six days now, God is going to be doing two things. He's going to be forming and he's going to be filling. 
So God created everything. And in the first instant of creation, it was formless and empty. It was unformed and unfilled. But over the next six days, God will be forming it and God will be filling it. Verse two, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, what is this this deep? Well, it's water. And how do we know it's water? Because the Bible tells us elsewhere, Second Peter chapter 3, the earth was formed out of water and by water. One commentator says, I think astutely, the deep refers to a massively deep layer of water covering or surrounding the surface of barren and desolate earth, which was at that point simply an unformed chunk of silicon and other basic elements. The waters would continue to cover the desolate earth until day three, which we will see next week, when the land would finally appear. Not only then was it initially covered with with water that would be separating in day three, the water from the dry land, but also the last part of verse two says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, what does that mean? Why is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? One, I've already alluded to the fact that those who were reading this and needed to be reminded or taught that God creates something out of nothing and he's going to do that with this ragtag group coming out of of Egypt. Not only is that the case, but it's also true that the Spirit of God in particular breathes life into non-life. The Spirit of God breathes life into non-life. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 7, At the creation of the first man, the Bible says that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. And so now here you have the spirit of God hovering and the spirit of God is the one that gives life to this inanimate material that God has created in the first instant of creation. And so one commentator says this. He interprets this hovering of the Spirit of God as an intensified and vitalized type of vibration. He says we should not be averse to holding that the foundation for all physical laws operative in the world now was laid by this preparatory activity. The germs of all that's created were placed into dead matter by him. He was the preparatory work for leading over from inorganic to the organic. Stay with me. In more scientific terminology, Christian, or creation scientist Henry Morris says this pictures this moving, vibrating activity of the Spirit of God as the imparting of energy to organize and shape the primeval matter that God had created. Morris says this, it's significant that the transmission of energy in the operations of the cosmos is in the form of waves, light waves, heat waves, sound waves, and so forth. In fact, except for the nuclear forces which are involved in the structure of matter itself, there are only two fundamental types of forces that operate on matter, gravitational and electromagnetic. All are associated with fields of activity and with transmission of wave motion. Waves are typically rapid back-and-forth movements that are normally produced by the vibratory motion of a wave generator of some kind. Energy, he says, cannot create itself. It is most appropriate that the first impartation of energy to the universe is described as the hovering, vibrating movement of the Spirit of God himself. So when it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters, the Spirit was saying, I'm here, in effect. 
to God's people. And I'm going to make something out of this nothing. But he was also imparting, animating that inanimate matter that God had created, giving energy to it. Now, what does that mean for you and me? That God not only creates out of nothing, he imparts spiritual life out of nothing, but he fashions with nothing much to work with. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Well, it means the same thing that it meant to the prophet Jeremiah, who said, like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, saith the Lord. What God does in salvation, in imparting spiritual life to the spiritually dead, creating something out of nothing, creating out of nothing and now fashioning out of nothing, he does this in in sanctification. Those that he gives spiritual life to, now he fashions them by giving them continual life and making them into the image of the Lord Jesus, causing them and motivating them to do his work and his will. And that's why after describing our salvation in marvelous terms in Ephesians chapter 2, this is what verse 10 says in that great passage. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, God makes something out of nothing. That means you and me. And God creates out of nothing and God fashions out of nothing. And he is involved in fashioning you and me. Secondly, in your outline, God not only makes something out of nothing, he makes all things effortlessly. Effortlessly. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. How much effort did God expend there? And God said, and it was. And then as you go through the creation week, God said, and it came to be. God said, and it was. God speaks into existence. And the Bible makes much of this fact in subsequent chapters. Because we need to understand the power of the command and the word of God. And so Hebrews chapter 11 says this, the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. God made it, created ex nihilo without pre-existing material. And it was. The psalmist says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host, by the breath of his mouth, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And again, the psalmist, at his command, all things were created. So if that's the case, if God can make all things without effort, then why take six days to get it done? I mean, why not just go poof? And there it is. Why doesn't God just give a string of commands and there it is? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he clearly can, right? He clearly can speak it into existence without any effort on his part. So why take time to do so when he could produce it in an instant? Here's why. God works, not because he has to, God works to set a pattern for us. God works in the beginning to set a pattern for our work to come. But secondly, God works to give a promise to us. To give a promise to us that he who is outside of time will, for our benefit, work 
within time. God is going to, over time, fashion and refashion you. And in these very first pages of God's word, he is giving us that promise that this is the way I operate. That even though in time you are going to experience all kinds of things and you're going to face all kinds of things, I'm going to be actively at work in time and over time fashioning you. God makes something out of nothing. And God makes all things without effort, effortlessly. And third in your outline, God makes all things well. He makes all things well. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, as God goes through his creation week and his work of creation week, you'll find him pronouncing what he makes good several times. This is the first time. But he does so again in verse 10 and verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, 25, and then 31. It was very good. God pronounces what he makes as good. That is... What he has made has a perfection that completely fulfills his intended purpose. It's good in that it has a perfection that completely fulfills his intended purpose for it. Now, the fact that God could call matter good means that the Bible does not teach a heresy that has been around and still exists, even if people don't know where it came from. It's called Platonic, Platonic dualism. It comes from the philosopher Plato. And Plato was one who believed in a dualism between the spirit world and the material world. And that dualism, in Plato's view, was that matter was evil, but the spirit was good. And so the material world was evil. But the Bible doesn't teach the material world is evil. In fact, God made the material world, and what did God call it? God called it good. And in fact, our material bodies are not evil. And yet many well-meaning Christians have adopted a platonic dualism without knowing even what that is. Perhaps owing to some older translations, English translations of the Bible, they've taken the word flesh. And the flesh is spoken of in negative terms in your Bible. But that's because the word that's translated flesh in your New Testament, sarks, means your sin nature, not your body. Soma is the word for your body. And so people take flesh to mean body and therefore body is evil. And God says, no, I created matter and pronounced it good. Now, how does God how does God do this? How does God know what's good from what's not good? Because God knows his good purpose and therefore knows what is good and what will result in in good. Novation and St. Augustine, a couple of early church fathers, had this to say about God's, God's goodness. Novation said, the works of a good creator can only be good. Augustine said, because he's all-powerful and good, he made everything exceedingly good. That is to say, God himself is the original standard of goodness and beauty, not something outside of himself. Novation went, went on to talk about how God... In all that he does, makes all that he does good and can only make it good. What could you possibly say then that would be worthy of him, says Novation? He's more sublime than all sublimity. 
higher than all heights, deeper than all depth, clearer than all light, brighter than all brilliance, more splendid than all splendor, stronger than all strength, mightier than all might, more beautiful than all beauty, truer than all truth, more enduring than all endurance, greater than all majesty, more powerful than all power, richer than all riches, wiser than all wisdom, kinder than all kindness, better than all goodness, juster than all justice, more merciful than all mercy. Every kind of virtue must of necessity be less than he who is the God and source of all virtue. God is the one who defines good because God is himself all good. And he can do so because he knows his good purpose and therefore knows what is good and what will result in good. And that's why your New Testament can say, we know That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, God makes all things well. God does all things good. What's going on in your life? And is what's going on in your life good? I'm here to remind you that a good and all-wise and loving God has ordained whatever comes to pass. And either the thing itself is good or the thing will be used for good. And a good God makes that promise to you in whatever situation you are in. And so God makes something out of nothing. He makes all things effortlessly. He makes all things well. And I say lastly, God makes everything on time. God makes everything on time. Verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, how do you have day and night? You don't, you, don't have the, you don't have the sun yet, but you've got this light source that God has supplied because God is light in himself. So the one who's going to create the sun three days later, it's no problem for God to have provided light at the opening of creation. But in order to have a day and evening, you're going to have to have some movement of, of the earth. Scientist Henry Morris says this, Such a cyclical light-dark arrangement clearly means that the earth was now rotating on its axis and that there was a source of light on one side of the earth corresponding to the sun, even though the sun was not yet made. Since the presence of visible light waves necessarily involves the entire electromagnetic spectrum, setting the electromagnetic forces into operation completed the energizing of the physical cosmos. So in verse 5, there's a lot there. That there was a first day means that the earth is now rotating on its axis. And on one side, there is this temporary light source that God has created. And it says in verse 5 that this is how it went. That there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then each of the six days, that's what it says. And there was evening and morning the second day. And evening and morning the third day. Now why evening and morning? Why not morning and evening? This whole evening and morning thing is just backwards for me. Is it for you? All right, well, bear with those of us for whom it's backwards. Why why does God say it that way? Here's why. Because God did his work with the light, 
during the day. And then there was the evening. And then there was morning, which means we ended that first day. When the morning comes to begin the next day, we have ended the first day. And so the sequence is work during the day, sunset, sunrise, then work during the day, sunset, sunrise, and then you have a complete day. Now, in verse 5, it says that evening and morning were the first day. Now, it's translated first day, that is, as an ordinal, first, second, third. And all of the other five are indeed that, second, third, fourth. But this one in verse 5 is not, the Hebrew is not an ordinal, it's a cardinal. That is, it's not first day, it's day one, or one day. And here in this very first pronouncement during that creation week, what God is saying is, this is what constitutes a day. Evening and morning, and I add, knowing what we know scientifically now, the earth rotating in a 24-hour rotation. To put it another way, this is a 24-hour day. And every time that the word yom, the Hebrew word translated day in your Old Testament, Every time in your Old Testament that that is used with a number, day one, one day, first, second, third, every time, it's always a 24-hour day. And in fact, in Exodus chapter 20, you might jot this down, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, Exodus 20, 8 through 11, where God gives his Ten Commandments, you remember the fourth commandment was remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now here's why. You're to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, according to God. For in six days, the Lord God created the world and all that is in it. Comparing the six days of creation to the seventh day of the Sabbath Sabbath rest. Now, what does that mean for you and me? I mean, why does God mark time? God does everything... (laughs) God does everything according to his sovereign plan, and his sovereign plan is always on time. And you see that now throughout the rest of the word of God. You see it in stories like the romance between a woman named Ruth and a man named Boaz. And in that beautiful four-chapter narrative about how God brought these two together and would later use their children and grandchildren ultimately to produce a descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. But God brought them together for that very purpose, brought them together, in fact, hundreds of years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Ruth met a man named Boaz who was from Bethlehem, and that's how Bethlehem became what we call the city of David, through whom the Savior would come. But in that beautiful four chapters, here's my favorite verse and my favorite phrase. Ruth chapter 2. As it turned out, She was working in a field belonging to Boaz. My favorite phrase is, as it turned out. You know, it just sort of happened. And dear friend, it didn't just sort of happen. And dear friend, it never just sort of happens. God does all things well, and God does everything on time. And God taught that through a Jewish woman Esther as well. When famously in Esther chapter 4, the Bible says to Esther, you have come to your royal position. And here's another of my favorite phrases in the Bible for such a time as this. 
You weren't born at the wrong time. You're not living at the wrong time. You're not past your time. You're not too old. You're not too young. You are exactly where a sovereign God who does all things well and all things on time wants you to be. And so what does all of that mean for you and me? God makes something out of nothing. God does it effortlessly. God does it all well. God does it always on time. Here's what it means to you and me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things of this world, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. He is the one who has given light into our dark souls. He is the one who continues to breathe life into us, fashioning us into the image of Jesus. He is the one who is doing all of that perfectly well and perfectly on time. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. From the very first verses of the Word of God, you and I are taught to believe that we need never despair. Never despair. Not only let him who boasts boast in the Lord, but let him who despairs take hope in the Lord. And here is why in your take-home truth. God can do anything with nothing. God can do anything with nothing. Now listen, we're going to pray, we're going to be done. But whatever's going on with you, whatever's happening with you, it is downright ungodly and unchristian to say it can't happen. I don't see a way forward. There's no way forward. With Almighty God, there is always a way forward. God, in fact, delights in making something out of nothing. And the reason he delights to make something out of nothing when it's absolutely desperate and you don't know how to move forward and God is the one who makes it happen. Here's why. Because then we boast in the Lord. Some of you came into this room with situations that you have concluded are hopeless. There is absolutely no such thing as hopelessness with the true and living God. So, dear friend, do you know, do you trust, do you believe this true and living God? I want to close with an opportunity for every person here to place their complete belief and trust in the true and living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do I do that? I do that by recognizing that I'm a sinner. By recognizing that I'm only not only nothing, I have no spiritual life on my own. I can only have spiritual life through God that manifests itself in so many ways in my life. So you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And God must initiate the spiritual life in us. But God creates out of nothing. Recognize 
Christ died for your sins. And give your life to God. Repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you and go your way, not my way. And receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. When we do that from your heart to God, acknowledge your sin. That Jesus died for your sin. Give him your life. And he will begin to change you. Begin the work that only he can do in you from the inside out. Let's pray. Almighty God. Almighty God. All might belongs to you. And so, Lord, I do not say that easily. I do not say that flippantly. You are almighty. You have all power. You have all control. And it is only because you are almighty and all powerful and sovereign that you were able to create out of nothing. It is only because everything is initiated from you that you and only you can pronounce what is good. We only know what is good in a derivative way derived from you, the originator of what is good. So almighty God, thank you in your might and in your inherent life and light. Thank you for breathing life into me and turning on the light of my once darkened mind. Thank you, God, the Holy Spirit, who animated the inanimate matter of original creation for breathing life into my spiritually dead soul. Thank you for the miracle of creation that goes on every day in some part of your world where you call someone out of darkness into light and into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Holy Spirit, we are asking you to do that in this sacred moment. And we are asking you as well, Holy Spirit, to do your fashioning work in the hearts of your people. I pray that those who came into this room without hope, with filled with darkness, that you might brighten their countenance. Because they are reminded that they can trust and believe in the true and living God who has created all things. And who can refashion them and refashion their situation. Oh Lord, we ask you to move in hearts. Move in circumstances so that we are left where we always should be, bringing glory to you and boasting only in the Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.